Hello, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news stories of the past seven days, the three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information, and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following three news items. First, a mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas left 21 people dead, of whom 19 were children. This is the second mass shooting in as many weeks. Second, political responses to the aforementioned. And third, President Biden asserts America's commitment to defend the island of Taiwan in the case of a Chinese invasion. First, to Texas. Atrocities beget atrocities. Sorrows multiply sorrows. And the unspeakable carnage of one week bleeds into that of the next. On Tuesday morning, the 24th of May, a young man, 18 years of age, drove to Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, outside whose grounds he crashed and then abandoned his truck. In truth, it wasn't his truck, but that of his grandmother, the only immediate family member, it seems, with whom the killer, Salvador Ramos, had any semblance of a relationship. From his father, also named Salvador Ramos, he was estranged. The elder Ramos had been, due to the exigencies of his work and concerns over the pandemic, out of his son's life. With his mother, Adriana Reyes, his relationship was no better. She reportedly struggled with substance abuse and rejected her son from her home. And so the teen, unhoused by his mother, unsupervised by his father, unenrolled at his high school, Uvalde High School, of which he'd recently dropped out, was living with his grandparents. A confrontation between Ramos and his grandmother led to his shooting her in the face. The attack, by all evidence, was not unpremeditated. A private message he'd sent earlier to a friend expressed his intention to pull the trigger. By some miracle of grandmotherly fortitude, though, she survived the gunshot and was fleet enough to rush to a neighbor whom she urged to call the police. No sooner had they been called than Ramos drove to the school, exited the truck he'd taken and crashed, which now sat in a ditch, 
and approached the parking lot of Robb Elementary School. Alerted by the commotion, two men from a nearby funeral home emerged to inquire into Ramos's well-being. He shot at them and missed. A teacher, whom security footage caught just minutes prior opening an exterior door, through which it's assumed the assailant gained his entry, leapt out to assess the outburst of sound. Noticing the crashed vehicle, the ring of gunshots and the armed assailant, she quickly called 911. It's unclear if, upon her return inside, she locked the door. This might have been the day's fatal oversight, the small moment by which 21 lives were ultimately decided. Ramos, not having yet gained entry, proceeded to shoot at the building from the outside. He was armed with two rifles, of which he only ended up using one, many rounds, and a handgun. In Texas, while it's illegal for a man of only 18 years to own a handgun, there is no restriction on his ability to purchase a rifle, which Ramos apparently did shortly after his last birthday on the 16th of May. His pathway to the school was, for all intents and purposes, unimpeded. Initial reports mentioned a school resource officer patrolling the campus by whom Ramos was confronted, though not deterred. This is untrue. The officer was, at the crucial moment at which he was needed, absent from the scene. It was only when he heard the 911 call from the teacher, the woman next to whom he probably should have been standing, that he hastened back to reassume his vacant post. But he was too late. Ramos, by that time, had entered the building. It should be noted here that Uvalde is a small town of about 16,000 residents, whose SWAT capabilities might have been unequal to the occasion. Nevertheless, three minutes after Ramos entered the building, three officers from the Uvalde Police Department were in pursuit. Ramos fired at them, a hostile gesture by which they seemed to have been rattled, after which they called for backup as they regrouped a fair distance from the building. This was at about 11.35 a.m. A half hour later, as many as 19 officers were on the scene. And yet, it wasn't until 12.50 that they ultimately confronted the shooter. In this intervening period of time, Ramos found the nearest classroom in which to barricade himself, and... As he declared in another Facebook message, this one sent after the shooting of his grandmother, to carry out a massacre of children. That is what happened next. Of the 25 to 30 fourth grade students housed in one single classroom, Ramos killed 19. He also killed the two teachers. Seventeen others, including law enforcement officials, were injured. Over an hour after the first shots rang out on the property of the funeral home, 
Ramos was met with proportionate resistance. A key to the barricaded door was obtained from the janitor, of which a tactical border patrol agent made use. He breached the door and shot and killed Ramos. This is the second mass shooting to happen in America in as many weeks. Our second news item is the political responses to the aforementioned. In the shadow of this horrific mass shooting, at which the devil himself trembles to look, most other news items have been obscured. That said, our third and final item will touch on a different topic, but for the second, we'll briefly review some of the political responses to this atrocity. Just before nine o'clock on the evening of the shooting, President Biden delivered some remarks. He reflected, quite feelingly, on the pain by which the families of the slain and the community at large must be, and likely forever will be, overcome. He said, quote, To lose a child is like having a piece of your soul ripped away. There's a hollowness in your chest, and you feel like you're being sucked into it and never going to be able to get out. It's suffocating, and it's never quite the same." Unquote. In speaking of his deceased son, Beau, who was afflicted by cancer earlier in life, Biden used this language before. After quoting scripture, the president then pivoted, moving quickly from the sacred to the political. His tone rising in exasperation, he asked, quote, When in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name will we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? Unquote. He went on to list our recent history of gun violence, of which, as he assured us, he was sick and tired. A sickness and weariness, I think, all Americans share. He then said, quote, The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. What in God's name do you need an assault weapon for except to kill someone? Deer aren't running through the forest with Kevlar vests on, for God's sake. It's just sick. Now, these lines shouldn't go unscrutinized. For one, that 18-year-old kid is, whether his level of maturity comports with the idea or not, a legal adult, to whom the right to bear arms is still lawfully extended. I suppose that that age can be raised, and, given the current stock of 18-year-olds among us, probably should be. But that must be legislated. Now, what about an 18-year-old kid, to use his term, enlisted in the United States military, to whom an assault weapon is, by the very government he oversees, trustingly given. As Commander-in-Chief, would President Biden be inclined to strip such vital young men and women of their arms and prohibit them from undertaking dangerous missions in advance of the nation's security? What about a 20-year-old kid? Is the idea of a 20-year-old kid walking into a gun store and buying two assault weapons also offensive? As I recall, in late August 2021, 13 U.S. servicemen, by whom the evacuation of Afghanistan was being facilitated, 
were killed by an ISIS-K terrorist. Of the thirteen, four were just twenty years of age. Should heroes like them, not being twenty-one, have been denied the purchase of a firearm as civilians? As for the line about the deer, it's one to which President Biden habitually returns, no matter its aptness for the occasion. When he does, as he often does, it's with a mixture of scorn and jocularity. His image of a deer clad in Kevlar is inherently ridiculous and, for this reason, might have been omitted from what should have been a grave and solemn speech. The idea here is that guns of such power and lethality are unnecessary for the purposes of hunting unarmored woodland creatures. A far more modest instrument could be employed in the killing of a deer. He concluded by saying, quote, Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it and stand up to the lobbies? End quote. Why do we keep letting this happen? Quite an inflammatory question to pose, on whose two words, we and letting, we might focus our attention a while. By we, you should note, he undoubtedly means to exclude himself and those by whom his specific policy recommendations are promoted. No, by we, he means you, or anyone who doesn't fully endorse his prescriptions. Why do you keep letting this happen? Asks the man who's been, for most of his adult life, in the upper chamber of the legislative branch as a senator for 36 years, and the pinnacle of the executive branch as vice president for eight and president now for two years. That's almost a half century spent at the highest echelon of our federal government, and yet it's our spines for whose stiffening he calls. It was, above all, not the speech of a statesman, but that of a politician. And then we turn to Robert Beto O'Rourke. Robert Beto O'Rourke, the failed Democrat Senate and presidential candidate, by whom the incumbent Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, is now being challenged, responded in a different and much more indecorous way. As Governor Abbott concluded his remarks about the day's events, as he prepared to yield the microphone to another speaker, O'Rourke rose from his seat in the audience, approached the stage, and began to chastise the governor, on whose, quote, inaction and poor governance he blamed this atrocity. O'Rourke asserted that, as a consequence of the governor's leadership, poor leadership, this killing was, quote, predictable. Implicit in that charge is the notion that the shooting would have been avoidable had it not been for Governor Abbott's ineptitude. O'Rourke was promptly chided by those gathered on the stage, among whom one could count Governor Abbott, Senator Ted Cruz, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin. He was then escorted out of the building by security guards. It later became clear that this wasn't an organic upwelling of passion on the part of O'Rourke. 
at the conference's start, so as to avoid detection, two of O'Rourke's staffers took seats in the crowd, from which they got up in order to accommodate O'Rourke when it had begun. It was, for him, a chance to promote his self-image. Whether or not he's now looked upon more or less approvingly in the eyes of Texas voters, I know not. What I do know is that it was infelicitous behavior, poorly tailored to the situation upon which it was forced. And our third item. Biden declares intention to defend Taiwan. Over the past weekend, just prior to the deadly shooting in Texas, President Biden was completing his tour of Asia. While in Japan, flanked by the country's new Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, Biden was asked how he would respond to any aggressive action taken by China against the island of Taiwan. Quote, Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan? A reporter asked. To which the president responded with a swift, unequivocal, Yes. The question, I should note, was not asked in Japanese, but in the Queen's plain English, the very language in which Biden is occasionally fluent. What this means is that, if China were to invade Taiwan, a small island located about 110 miles off the coast of mainland China, over which, since its founding in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party has declared inalienable sovereignty. American troops would be actively deployed in its defense. Were this to happen, Sino-American relations would be forever changed, and a legitimate Third World War would begin. A little history. By the year 1949, the Japanese Empire had collapsed. The West's imperialistic lust for Oriental colonies had, by and large, waned. The communists of China, led by Mao Zedong, had consolidated power on the mainland, while the defeated nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, sought refuge across the Taiwan Strait. Thenceforth, the two governments developed independently, the communists in Beijing and the nationalists in Taipei. In 1972, at the direction of Richard Nixon, America hoped to repair its fragile relationship with Beijing and, even more than that, to gain a geostrategic partner, a reliable friend in the Far East by whom the USSR, the Soviet Union, might be neutralized. As a condition to this new friendship with China, America agreed to the One China Policy, by which China's supremacy over Taiwan was explicitly affirmed. Now, regarding the issue, this remains America's official position, despite her agreement to the Taiwan Relations Act signed in 1979. This act complicates the matter, and perhaps undermines the One China policy to which she'd previously agreed. The Taiwan Relations Act guarantees America's support for the island, for whose defense the purchase of American arms is necessary. By engaging both sides, acknowledging the One China policy in Beijing while honoring the Taiwan Relations Act in Taipei, America has been able to strike a delicate balance 
Now, the name for this clever technique is strategic ambiguity, an approach to international politics at which an era in need of red lines rightly looks askance. Now, though, after hearing Biden, we might remove the modifier strategic. Our position appears only to be ambiguous. The White House, it should be said, promptly walked back Biden's statement, asserting that, quote, our policy has not changed. He, Biden, reiterated our one-China policy and our commitment to peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. He also reiterated our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with the military means to defend herself. End quote. <laughs> if only the president had said so himself. And with that, we arrive at our weekly quote. This one comes to us from Percy Dearmer, an English priest, liturgist, and socialist. He who would valiant be, against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. Hmm. If only in America we had more valiant men. That concludes this week's concise recap. Consider following or subscribing to this channel, on which I urge you to leave a five-star review. Share it with friends. Email me your thoughts. Until next week, farewell from Finneran's Wave.